All right, well, let's go ahead and get started with a word of prayer, and we can, uh, we can dive in and go from there. God, thanks for the opportunity tonight to um, take a look at how we can seek to be understood in presenting the gospel and sharing with people uh, who you are and what um, you've done to save us and them. Um, help us um, just to think clearly. Uh, God, give us a heart for those we know that don't know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Evening, man. Glad you could uh, join us. Surprise! Didn't expect to see you there. Um, yeah, welcome back. After uh, eight weeks off, it feels like. <laughs> hasn't been. Yeah, if it hasn't been weather, it's been sickness. It hasn't been sickness. It's been the Super Bowl. It's been. Uh, it's been something. But it is good to be back. Um, obviously, we're going to have to abbreviate class a little bit to get through everything. I, I think you saw we did add March the tenth. As a week, we plan to have the final class next week. So we've got this week, and then the third, and then the tenth will be our three final weeks. Um, and so, right off the bat, I want to come back to our syllabus, um, remind you of our assignments because those were—they um, weren't creeping up on us the last time we were here, and now they're right upon us. So, um, first assignment was reading "Who Is Jesus." Who has gotten at least started on reading "Who Is a Little Red Book"? Um, if you haven't done that, go ahead and get started. The second one is probably the most important assignment, and that's the writing assignment. We talked about how these classes kind of tend towards um, attracting classroom-type people, and it's hard to get classroom out of classroom at times, and so the writing assignment is built towards that. Um, the five parts of it are this. Question one, where do I need to repent of thinking of others as, quote, the enemy? People think differently, that believe differently than me, and as long as I see others who uh, think differently than me as the enemy, I'm never going to be effective in reaching them. That has to start with empathy for them, not hostility towards them. Number two, who is one person who's not a Christian that I can reach with the gospel? Number three, what is that person's biggest obstacle to believing the gospel? Number four, how will I use the material from this class to engage in respectful yet meaningful dialogue with that person? And then lastly, number five, how can I assist other Christians in growing to create a less polarizing environment? So as you walk through this, it really shouldn't be a hard assignment, um, but it will help you in saying, here are the things we've learned, and here's how I take it and do something with it. Uh, that syllabus, if you've lost your copy, is up on the Hub, and so you can download it there um, and take a look at each of those things. The last piece, then, is to take one book on the recommended reading list and say, I'm going to read that before the end of 2019. So just email me that um, paper whenever you complete it. Um, just tag at the end whatever book from the recommended reading that you'll plan to read by the end of 2019. Um, and that would, be, that would be really good. Set that over there. Um, picking up on where we were before, it's, I know it's been a little while just to kind of reorient ourselves. The class was designed uh, to be a seven-week class where the first two weeks focus on identifying our cultural moment in a, a polarizing world, a secular world, a digital world, um, and we kind of do a deep dive on identification and diagnosis of where we're at culturally, and then we begin to move into, okay, how do I engage that culture with the gospel? How do I um, think through apologetics and responding to those objections with the gospel. Um, and so here we are at a point where the last class was probably the most abstract. If you felt a little bit lost, that's understandable. Part of that, I didn't help you by not giving you a very user-friendly note sheet, um, which, by the way, I don't know if everybody got one. Aaron, can you um, grab this? Did anybody 
push your hand up if you didn't get one. There's kind of a follow-along note sheet there to help um, help you track along with us tonight. Um, and so what we want to do then in, in this week, next week's class, and the, the final weeks, the last three weeks, is to say, okay, we, we diagnosed where we were as a culture. Now, how do we take that and do something meaningful with it as far as seeing the gospel go forward with those that we know? Um, and so the, the quick review from last week, or last time, not last week, was that there are two defining characteristics of our culture that lead to us being distracted. As a whole, especially towards spiritual things, we're a distracted culture. What were those two things that we talked about? Two marks of our culture. Cell phone. Cell phone, so the digital age, right? We talked about um, that causes us to reflect or resist reflection and meditation. So when I try to reflect on my spiritual state, it's difficult because there's always something on that device pulling my attention away from thinking about where I am spiritually. And if it's difficult for us who are taught that in church on a weekly basis to reflect in such a way, how much more difficult will it be for somebody who's not used to hearing spiritual instruction at all? Or as it moves again to a place of empathy there. The digital aspect of our culture was the first one. What was the second one we said? A secular secular culture. And what we meant by that, again, was not that there's necessarily more atheists in Brownsburg or Indianapolis or wherever, but that belief in the supernatural was becoming less and less plausible. And so when we talk about, hey, I, you really need to take a look at who Jesus is, it begins to be heard more and more like, hey, you need to take a look at this clip from SportsCenter. And we put Jesus on a t-shirt, which isn't necessarily wrong, but then to the outside world, you begin to associate a Jesus t-shirt with a Duke Blue Devils t-shirt. And oh, you're a fan of either of those. And so it, um, it begins to feel like one of many options. And so and say, hey, this is really important. You need to hone in here. It's difficult for people to see why that this is not just some sort of identity expression. So those were the two things we said. And then we came into kind of talking through the gospel again. The gospel in four words. God, man, Christ, response. Got, hey, I got this up on the PowerPoint for you, even if you didn't get that last time. Probably good to write that down again, to be honest. God, man, Christ, response. And so the questions that we said would flow out of that um, are, when we talk about God, who made us and to whom are we accountable? Man, what is our problem? Are we in trouble? If so, why? Christ, what is God's solution to that problem? And fourth response, how do I come to be included in that salvation? And so if I were to give a, a very brief gospel presentation, I might say something like, hey, the Bible teaches that the entire world was started by a God who created everything. And this God is holy. That means he's utterly unique. There's no one like him. And he's completely sinless. In fact, not only is he completely sinless, because he's holy, there can be no sin even in his presence. The story the Bible tells is that mankind was created by God and chose to rebel against him and try to go their own way and reject the rules that he'd set up, reject the way of human flourishing that he set up. And as a result, the penalty for rejecting what he'd set forth is death, eternal death where we're separated from God. And there's nothing we can do to fix this problem. Only God could fix it. And praise the Lord, the good news of the Bible is that God did work to fix it. He sent his very own son, Jesus, 
to live the perfect life that we didn't live. And because he was perfect, he's the only person who could take our penalty, the death. And so when we say Jesus died on the cross, that means that we should have died because we chose to reject God. But Jesus died instead. And he in turn offers you a new relationship with God that was broken. And what's required of you is that you respond in repentance and faith. Faith meaning this, Jesus, I trust your death on the cross is what is required to forgive my sins and bring me back to God. And repentance is a change. I was facing this way, I'm going to turn and face this way. Instead of pursuing myself, I'm now going to pursue God. And I'm going to give my life to that. And so in, I don't know if that was, 90, 120 seconds, I use that as kind of a rough outline in my head to talk through God, man, Christ response. Not that every gospel presentation needs to look exactly that way, um, but I think it's helpful to have that grid there. Um, and I do want to clarify something. Last time I, I used a phrase that is um, partially true, but it's ultimately incorrect. I said, what do we need, does someone need to know to be saved? And that's, that's just not sufficient. The demons know this, and they're not saved. So I should have said, what does someone need to believe to be saved? Not know. And it's a, maybe a, a minor tweak, but I want to be clear on that. Um, and so what I want to say is, as we come into these discussions of how do I present the gospel, hopefully in compelling ways, I hope that you all grow in that. It doesn't matter what you gain from this class and next week's class and the one to follow. If we get the message wrong, it's lipstick on a pig. It's not helping anybody ultimately see that relationship with God restored. And so yeah. this we must get right. We must be sure of this. We must be backwards, forwards, ready to roll here um, because it all hinges on this. And we want to be able to present this in compelling ways, but compelling without this is losing. And so for our first discussion time, what I want to do is I want you to be with a partner and I'm going to give you a little more than 60 seconds this time. I'm going to give you about 120 seconds. And I want you to walk through the God-man-Christ response with your partner. I'll give you 120 seconds to do so. And then we'll flip. And your partner will have a chance to do that. And what I found is that if you just say this out loud a few times to yourself, you'll realize, man, I've been in church my whole life. And I say I know the gospel backwards and forwards. And it's still hard for me to say it out loud without feeling like I'm kind of stumbling along. And so just to rehearse it in an out loud way is really helpful. And if, if you can say it to your husband or to the person sitting next to you, it's going to be a lot easier than to kind of go on and share with somebody else. So grab a partner, and I'll give you um, about two minutes then um, to explain the gospel in two minutes. Looks like everybody's about... Partnered up. All right, go for it.
So right now you're about one minute. I did it in a minute. <laughs> I don't know what else to say now. Not at all. <laughs> Praise Jesus. <laughs> Okay, so there we are. That's about two minutes. Um, and I think having that mapped out kind of helps us to realize I don't, um, I don't have to talk 100 miles an hour. I can have a conversation. I'm not just on a stumping kind of speech here. Um, we can engage, but let's flip it over and give the other, uh, other person an opportunity. You've got two minutes. Go for it. All right, and so that's at about two minutes as well there. Um, obviously, one of the challenges that we face is um, right now you have an audience that wants to hear what you have to say, um, and we're not always guaranteed that outside of this classroom. Um, sometimes we're not guaranteed it inside this classroom. Um, um, but the, the, the kind of the common question comes up, okay, so I, I've got this relationship with this guy, we can go eat wings together, we can, you know, talk about everything under the sun, but how do I, 
how do I pull off the transition and hit him with the Jesus juke and get this to the gospel? And how do I do that? Right. And in some ways, the exercise that we just underwent can be, could be a a bit harmful because we begin to think, Hey, if I can stop talking about construction interests, if I can stop talking about landscaping interests, if I can stop talking about sports interests and start talking about spiritual interests, then that'll be what that person needs. And I think there's ways that the truth of the gospel ties into all of those things. And that's what I hope to kind of talk us through today and explore some ways that we can do that without compromising that message, right? So contextualization is the the technical term. I think you see that on your um, sheet. Did anybody have a chance to read that article I put out probably a month ago now? It's called Contextualization Without Compromise. If you haven't, hop back on the hub. It's not very long. It'll take you 90 seconds to read it. Um, But I think it'll be helpful in seeing what we're talking about. But let's start with the definition here. Contextualization, what I mean is taking the unchanging truth of the gospel and putting it into language that fits the context you're trying to reach. Now, if you talk to any missionary anywhere in the world, they're going to tell you this is exactly what they're trying to do. Right? You show up, hey, let's learn about the culture, and let's try and figure out how do I take the unchanging truth of the gospel, and I put it in language that somebody in Papua New Guinea, or in South Brazil, or in Northeast India, or wherever, can understand. Right, But oftentimes we don't view ourselves in the same way and we don't think about how do I communicate this in such a way that somebody in southern Boone County could understand this? How do I communicate this in such a way that somebody in northwest side of Brownsburg could understand this? Um, and contextualization has kind of been a, a charged word, so I don't know, maybe you've heard some of the, um, the negative pieces to that, where, where contextualization can go off the rails is it ends up being something like, I give people what they want and I tell them what they want to hear. And so it's always easier for you to understand the gospel if I don't talk about hell, okay, I won't talk about hell. Like that sort of thing. So that's that's clearly what we're rejecting. I don't, um, if that's what someone means when they say contextualization, then you you should dump that as well. Um, But there are some really important and some helpful things here. Um, And the objection that people will often come up with is they'll say something like this, why can't I just give people the gospel? Isn't that, we just said God, man, Christ response, two minutes. Isn't that enough? Can't I just give people the gospel? Um, and I think it's a simplistic look that um, we can debunk without working too difficult, um, without working too hard. It's not that difficult. So why contextualize? contextualize? And you'll see some theological reasons and some pragmatic reasons in your notes. So theologically, I'd start by saying this. Um, first off, the gospel is transcultural. By transcultural, it goes to different cultures. It goes across cultures. Um, and so Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says the following. says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. I changed the way I behave. I changed the way I spoke of this so that different people in different contexts could understand the gospel. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, even though I wasn't myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. 
To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. In other words, the gospel can apply to someone who is weak, to someone who's strong, who's under the law, who's not under the law. It can apply to anybody. Um, you see this um, illustrator when I say the gospel is transcultural. Think of your major world religions. Most of them basically have a geographic hub where they've been anchored forever. Okay, you've got your Eastern Hindu, Buddhist, you've got um, Islam in the Middle East. But Christianity has been this kind of rover that started out, obviously, in Jerusalem and then kind of went down into Africa and then up into Europe. The hub kind of came across the pond for a little while. I'd say right now, if you're saying where is the hub of Christianity where the most rapid expansion is probably in China right now, no other world religion is transcultural in that way, that it can embed in a culture and take on that as the hub, where it's thriving and growing in that way. So theologically, you see Paul talking about he contextualizes his message. The gospel is transcultural. But the second theological reason is that the gospel is also enculturated. What I mean by that is the gospel came into a culture. So it's not, you could say it's transcultural, it goes to all of them, and it just sort of exists above the fray, like a cloud, and it hovers here, there, and it's never really anywhere, enculturated. Um, and so here the text we look at is John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Entered a first century Jewish society. It came into that culture. Um, and so you see language being used like, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, that's a very specific culture that it's entering into. Right? It's, there's language like, take up your cross and follow me. It's a very specific kind of cultural language that's being used. And so what we see then is the gospel comes into a culture, but can also go into any culture. Does that make sense? It came into one specific one, but it's not limited to that one. It can go into any culture. And so because we see historically how that did happen and will continue to happen, then we have confidence to say it can enter into our culture and should as well. Now, pragmatically speaking, there are, are also some good reasons for this. Um, pragmatically, why should we contextualize? It's because our entire audience is enculturated. What I mean by that, they hear things in a certain way based on their culture, right? So, for example, if I were to walk into a Sunday morning in anywhere in the Midwest and start talking about, man, it's just so difficult for me to conceive of a God that could be loving. How could there be a love? Now, wrath, wrathful God, angry God, hell, I, I get all that. But how could God be love? That's the question I'd like to explore with you this morning. People are going to look at me like I'm outside my mind because my audience is enculturated. They hear things in a given way because they're in a culture. Okay, that should be fairly straightforward. Um, and another example of this, patriotism in church. A lot of 
American churches, you expect to see the Christian flag and the American flag right there. But as soon as somebody from Germany or Russia comes across the pond and they walk into church and say, what in the world are you guys doing? How Don't you realize if you marry yourself to the state, you are going to be in hot What This is a terrible idea. And the buddy across the row is like, no, we need a bigger 4th of July service this year to put the two together. Right now, what's actually right or wrong, there's an interesting conversation. But the point is, you hear things in different ways based on your culture. Your audience is enculturated. But also, you are enculturated. You're in a culture, and you will hear things and say things in a, a certain way. So, for example, does a southerner have an accent? Well, it depends on where you're from. Right? The only people that don't have accents are the people from here. <laughs> right? You see the irony in that. Um, if you're from, if you see a small body of water, not even a body moving, is it a creek or is it a creek? We had this conversation earlier. Right, you're enculturated, exactly. Um, do you wash the clothes or do you wash the clothes? Right, is it pecan pie or pecan pie? There are all things that you, you hear in a certain way, and as soon as somebody says something, you're not from around here, are you? That's just how it goes. Um, and so in all this, the pragmatic reason is we want to seek to be understood. And so when people say, well, why can't we just give them the gospel? Well, here's why. John 3.16, isn't that great? I love the gospel. <laughs> Just give them the gospel. Right? Because you're in a given culture, you hear things in a different way. And obviously, language is like one of the most common sense base ones. Yes, I need to adapt that. Take the unchanging truth of the gospel and state it in a way that people in a given context can understand. Um, but there's other things beyond be understood. How about be sensitive to that culture? So you could say, hey, I'm going to get up and I'm going to share in your language. But if I were to be up here tonight and my, my zipper was unzipped and I had a Speedo on my head and I was holding up my middle finger. We always tell our girls, tall man never goes alone. Um, <laughs> it would be next to impossible for any of you to focus because I wasn't being sensitive to your culture. You wouldn't be able to hear a thing that I said because I wouldn't be contextualizing that message at all. And so for missionaries, this is really challenging, especially when you go and do training if you're not from an area. I know my dad was in, actually, uh, Rob, he was in Brazil. And so he's standing up preaching, and he's doing something along these lines while he's giving this talk, and the translator's like, you're flipping them off, you're flipping them off, stop that right now. And he's, you know, just like, what do I do with my hands? I'm you don't even realize these things. So seek to be understood and to be sensitive are all just pragmatic reasons to think through this. Uh, the fact is almost everything you say and do is culturally conditioned. 
Um, in fact, you're far more culturally conditioned than you probably even realize. So we talked about um, language and that we speak. What about the illustrations we use? Right, there's certain things that you just say in a given context because they're going to be found funny there, and in other places it's not going to be funny. Um, the fact that we start at 6 o'clock here is a very culturally conditioned thing. Like, not just the, the, the time of day, but that I actually, the website says 6 o'clock, and it actually starts at 6 o'clock. Like, that's a very culturally conditioned way of operating. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I gave the call to worship, and I made fun of the New England Patriots. I was contextualizing to try and bring people in and get everybody, everybody laughs, ah, that's good stuff. And then I'm, I'm segueing out of that and into something more significant. These are all like micro versions of contextualization. And so it's happening all around us. The question is not will we contextualize or will we not? The question is will we do it well or will we do it poorly? All right, so there's theological reasons, there's practical reasons. Um, at the bottom of that first page, there's a, a fill in the blank. It says, contextualization doesn't mean that I don't give people the gospel. Contextualization doesn't mean that I don't give people the gospel. Then at the top of the next page, flip it over on the back. Contextualization does mean that I must be strategic in how I give people the gospel. Uh, one of the books on the recommended reading is this book by Sam Chan called Evangelism in a Skeptical World. And I almost didn't read it because the subtitle was so atrocious. Um, but it, it says, how to make the unbelievable news about Jesus more believable. Like, no, that's not really what I'm after here. Um, but I'd read enough good reviews about it that I, I gave the publisher a pass on their poor choice of a subtitle there. Um, and it is wonderful, especially in talking about how do I reach a postmodern audience. There were some ways that he just, he, he brought out points from the scriptures and, and helped me to really think differently about this whole contextualization conversation. That um, was really good. Um, but one of the things he said in there is this. We should challenge all cultures with the gospel because all human cultures are affected by sin. And we have the language to enter and challenge because we believe that God has left a redemptive analogy in every culture. That is, a means for communicating the gospel in a way that the people in that culture can understand. So every culture is going to have things that actually genuinely reflect the gospel in them. It's good that our culture values love and grace and mercy. That should be celebrated. It's also because every culture is affected by the fall. There's going to be parts of the culture that need to be reject rejected. But we also believe there's a redemptive analogy, as he says, a way we can speak into that. And that's what we need to identify, is how do I speak into that? So it's not just like, hey, here's my talk about work and home and sports, and then Jesus talk over here, the old secular sacred divide. But how does, how does it kind of get warped and woofed, to use that um, kind of like a, a clothing and sewing analogy, where it comes together as one? That's what I want us to help kind of explore today. Um, but before we get there, got another quicker discussion here. What is contextualization? And shouldn't we just give people the gospel? <clears throat> 60 seconds. And I, I want you, as you think about it, um, think through from the, I presented a very favorable contextualization kind of perspective. 
think through the person who might say, I just want to give them the gospel. Why isn't that sufficient? And how you might talk to that person. Because um, this is an important conversation for us to have. I'll give you about 90 seconds um, to explore both of those. All right, I hear a lot of good discussion there, um, but nevertheless, kind of want to forge ahead. Um, and I, I've promised that we would start to get more practical, and we're kind of at that fulcrum right here where the class starts to pivot out of, okay, the philosophy, here's what we're trying to do and why it's important that we do it that way, and here's how we do it. Um, I do want to give you just a sampling from this um, book from Tim Keller called Making Sense of God, An Invitation to the Skeptical. When I read this, I felt like this was the best book I'd read on helping me understand a secular mind. I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor. My dad's a missionary. I went to Bible college. I taught in a Christian school. I'm now a pastor. For me to fully immerse myself in a secular mind, I think, is really difficult. Um, And authors that can help me do that, I'm very thankful for. Um, And so if you feel like that may be something that would help you, I highly recommend this, um, even more so than his book, The Reason for God. The Reason for God addresses a lot of questions that church and de-church people have. Um, But he says this, and I think this gets at where we're going. People believe in God not merely because they feel some emotional need. You need Jesus. That's probably not going to be that compelling to someone who's coming from a secular viewpoint. But they do believe in God because it makes sense of what they see and experience. Indeed, we have seen that many thoughtful people are drawn toward belief somewhat unwillingly. If you've ever heard of C.S. Lewis' conversion, you'd explain it in a similar way. They embrace religion because they think it is more fully true to the facts of human existence than secularism is. And so then the task that we want to talk through the rest of our time here is, how do we take these facts of human existence and explain that Christianity actually explains these facts of human existence 
more um, accurately and more precisely and more fully than what secularism would do. Um, on your note sheet, did I put um, steps for growth in reaching people not like you? Is that in there? Okay, so, so the first thing, I've tried this over and over, and I hope you hear, hear me say it. The first thing is you have to change. You've got to change before somebody else. So the first step here is recognize a lot of things you do as cultural instead of the right way. Because when I start to see what I do as the right way of almost anything, then someone who does it the other way, I'm not going to feel empathy for, I'm going to feel disdain towards. You're doing it the wrong way. Why don't you do it my way? To be sure, there are many things that there is a right and a wrong way for. But a lot of the things we do are not that way. And then the second part of that is ask God to work on your heart with the gospel. Right? Because there's just a lot of ways where we are cultural Pharisees. So, so what I mean is we might say things like, well, these people, these, these darn millennials just aren't punctual. They just won't be there on time. Well, that may or may not be true. But there's a way I can take on a self-righteous view of that. Um, we may say something like, these people are just all into that touchy-feely, vulnerability, authenticity stuff. Man, why can't we just toughen up and get the job done? Right? Just press on and forge ahead together. Um, now, maybe, maybe it's gone off too far on one end. Maybe the pendulum needed to be swung a little bit in that direction. Right? The Bible does talk a lot about confessing our sins to one another. Um, and on the whole, um, baby boomers have struggled with that concept. Right? It feels very like, ah, we shouldn't be doing that. And present Bible versions like, oh yeah, that's definitely not what James meant in James 5 when he said confess your sins to one another. Interesting. <laughs> so, so there are ways in which we are cultural Pharisees. And so we just need to ask God to work on our heart with the gospel. Because there's going to be ways of talking about Christianity that may be um, completely acceptable that we've never thought about because in our little tribe we haven't thought about them in that way. And that's where, that's where that Sam Chan book, and there, there's going to be some things in here. If you read this, it'll stretch your thinking. You're like, ah, I don't know about that. Let me hear out. Let me hear the argument. I might disagree. But to me, I feel like that's when I'm at a really good book, when I'm starting to have to wrestle through like, mm, he says that so differently than I would. Can I actually articulate why that's wrong? Or is this stretching me and helping me to see a better perspective? Um, so the method of, of contextualization, get into this here. Our method of contextualization, number one, find a cultural story. So when I say contextualize the gospel, here's the method of what I'm trying to do, and I, and I want you to try to do, find a cultural story. So this might actually be an actual story, a piece of literature, a film, whatever. It could also be just a narrative of human life. Um, so, you know, I talked a couple of weeks ago about American Idol. You can find a cultural story in American Idol. You can find a cultural story in, um, in a, a few minutes I'll talk about, in a kid who wants to be a Division I athlete. And there's this whole narrative that goes around the mom-dad relationships there, the, the academic department, athletic department relationship. Like, there, there's a story that goes into that. Identify the cultural story. Secondly, find the existential cry. So again, American Idol, existential cry. Believe in yourself. If you believe in yourself and work hard enough, you can make it. Um, 
the D1 athlete, a lot of times it's vicariously driven by dad. And so this kid is saying the existential cry here is that I just want my dad to love and accept me for me and not have to be this guy that gets into Michigan State to play on the defensive line. Not there's anything wrong with that, but, but you see there's the existential cry that's within the story there. And then third, find and interpret the storyline. Find and interpret the storyline. And so that the storyline kind of asks three questions. How should things be? I.e., I should be loved, accepted based on my performance or not based on my performance. I should be achieving this athletic, this academic piece. Um, then question two, why are things not the way they should be? And then question three, what would set things right? Now, as I lay that out, I hope you're hearing a, almost like a, an echo of like gospel opportunity there. How are things supposed to be? Why aren't that way? How do we set things right? Okay. And, and the three responses, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, starts with resonate. So how are things supposed to be? Yeah, I want to resonate with that. So you guys are all around. I'll switch it. It's resonate, dismantle, gospel. You can write all three of those down, and then we can, we can talk about it. I know it's really hard to, to write furiously and to listen at the same time. Resonate, dismantle, gospel. So when I say resonance, you're saying obviously, yes, things should be that way. And what I want to do is I want to take whatever the existential cry is there, and I want to state that to the person with more emotional force than what I think they would say to me. So what I don't expect somebody to, if we, again, let's stick with American Idol for a second. I don't expect somebody to say, yes, man, just long, like, I just want to be able to believe in myself and achieve this and sign this record label deal. I don't expect them to verbalize it in that way. But I'm thinking through this is the existential cry of this cultural story. And I want to be able to resonate with it. I'm like, yeah, man, I want to believe in myself too. And in a religious way, I mean, people talk about um, believing that they're right. And I want to be able to believe in my intuitions about there being a creator God. I want, man, like, I, I want that so badly to be able to believe in what I'm doing and that I can achieve this if I work that hard at it. In my job, I want to feel that way. And so I want to state that in such a way that when, when they hear that and it's said with more emotional force than what maybe they would even go to, it's like, wait, I didn't expect you to say that. You're speaking my language a little bit now. Let's grab lunch on that one. Let me get a refill on my coffee. Right, that, that's where that resonance, like, it's empathy there is in action. This may be a good way of saying it. Empathy in action. And then I want to go to dismantle. And what I'm doing when I say dismantle is, here's why the non-gospel narrative can't fix things. 
And so I might say, um, because of the story the Bible tells us is that mankind has chosen to go their own way and they've rejected what God has put forward and everything in the world is broken. And that means my mind doesn't function the way it's supposed to either. My mind is tainted by selfishness. It's, and so I, I want to believe in myself. I want to be able to work hard. I want to be able to achieve these things. But I know deep down that no matter how hard I work, ultimately I'm going to come back to a self-serving interest. And I know, we all know, that selfishness at its core will destroy me. And so the harder I work to achieve this and build this empire, whatever it may be that we're talking about here, I understand that no matter what it is, it's ultimately going to boomerang back on me selfishly. Now, here I'm going to start to expect people to press back on that. Oh, come on. Are you saying that every fault, every other what you would deem false religion is just selfishly motivated? And, and I would say to that, yeah, you believe that. You believe religion is a human construct, right? You believe it's just this man-made way to make you feel better about yourself and superior to the rest of the world. And also, wait a second, this is, you're starting to sound too much like me. Is, is kind of the idea of what we're getting at here. And we're starting to show why the non-gospel narrative can't fix things because what needs fixed is my heart. And then I get to the gospel where I say, here's how the gospel does fix things and also what it will cost you. Because if all I do is say, here's how the gospel fixes things, then all I'm doing is speaking to felt needs and I run dangerously close to presenting this sort of... Um, like a weird version of the prosperity gospel. Like not necessarily name it, claim it, you'll have that private jet, but you've got this need felt or real in your life, and if you just believe these things about Jesus, then here you have it. It's all going to come your way, and everything will get worked out. Does that make sense? Uh, so here's how the gospel does fix things, but also what it will cost you. And so identify a cultural storyline that is going to be hopefully one that where you've got a, a high amount of um, understanding with this person you're trying to reach. And so you can immerse yourself in that with them. And there will always be opportunities. You know, the Olympics is like a great time for this, you know, where they do these heart-wrenching stories and, you know, everybody's sobbing up. And then, okay, now let's go walk, watch Michael Phelps and you're emotionally primed to go crazy when he wins the eighth gold medal. Um, but it kind of opens the door there for you to press in like, hey, did you think about what they said on that? Like, I actually think that's amazing right there. Let me actually resonate. Like what he said, that's so powerful to me. And all of a sudden you've got that opportunity to go in. And it's not like you're trying to do a crazy Jesus juke where I stop talking about the World Cup and all of a sudden I switch into how the Bible describes this aspect of creation. And that may be a helpful conversation to have at many points. But there, I think there's a way to, like I said, to kind of marry these two together where I can have a natural conversation. Like, hey, look, the issues that you're concerned about here, the Bible actually speaks to that. And through the gospel of Jesus, the only way that this is actually addressed. Right? Um, so we talked about, um, oh, what do you call it? 
American Idol a little bit. We talked about just a little bit this kid who wants to maybe take on a, a Division One scholarship. Um, what about a student who's seeking to break the rules, right? And you just see somebody who is, um, whether they're, you know, elementary, junior high, high school, and whatever form that takes would be sex or drugs or just pushing back on a, a smaller, what feels like less consequential rule. Like, how do we talk about that, okay? Well, what's the existential cry? Because you, you can all, you immediately, you see that narrative in your mind, the cultural story. Oh yeah, I know a kid like that. I know how that story goes. You could frame the exact same cultural story around the kid who keeps all the rules. Which interestingly, apply that to any student you know, and you're also telling the same story as Luke 15, the prodigal son. But that's a, a different version of that conversation. What are some of the possible existential cries within that narrative? Well, let's say the person who says, Let, let's break the rules, just for the sake of ease. Because th there's multiple possible existential cries here. What, that, what, there, what might be the longing of the heart? I'm asking genuine question feedback here as you think through. What, what, what might be the underlying, here's what I'm after? Attention. Attention, possibly. Acceptance, I definitely think of my middle school kids that they want to be accepted by others, so they're willing to do what others are encouraging. Yep, I think those two really go, go closely together. That's kind of the first and that's the second step. And man, I can't ever find acceptance for me but if I do this thing, if if I've got a jewel, then they'll then they'll accept me. Isn't a it's a tool for vaping for those of you that are wondering. Isn't it ultimately a, I want to mean something. I want to see that my life is real. That my life has got truth to it. And yeah, so Terry, I, I, a different way. Yeah, I, I do think meaning is at the core of it. I think sometimes people can are at a place where they can recognize that. And at other points, like some of the, the guys that we know that we've talked about there, they want that acceptance. They're not, they haven't, they're not self-reflective enough to recognize they're seeking meaning. I was just thinking like junior high and high schoolers aren't that deep. Right. I think it's more, but, I'm smarter than you are, and my way is better than fill in the brain. But, but think about saving Private Ryan. <clears throat> right, the brothers die, they send the whole force in to go get Private Ryan out, and where the movie begins and ends, he's in the cemetery. The last thing that is said to him before those guys die is to bring up and say, earn it. All these guys died to get you home to your mom so she would have one son left. Earn it. And at the end of the movie, when he's an old man, he's sitting there at the cemetery in tears, saying, did I earn it? Was there a meaning in my life? Or did I just throw away the last 70 years? So yeah, I do, I do think that's absolutely at the core. And I think based on where people are at, speaking to that particular one is, um, sometimes they're ready for that conversation, other times they're seeing something else. Um, I think freedom can be one maybe is the existential cry there, like, especially in a, like, I think at, at a Christian school setting where it feels like there's a lot of rules coming out, ah, I just want to break out of this, man, like, let me go do my own thing, be my own man, I get up and get out of the small town. I was going to say, I think that a lot of us want to feel like we have control yep. over 
Right. And so then based on that existential cry, that starts me to help me say, okay, now if I'm after attention and acceptance, so let's just, let's just run with that one for a second. That's the existential cry. Now, how does the non, how, how do we dismantle that? Well, sorry, I, we haven't resonated with that yet. How do we resonate with that existential cry? I deeply want acceptance and I want attention. I want to come to church and feel like people notice me. I want to come to church and feel like, man, people are actually excited to see me. Like you said, oh man, those junior high kids, they want attention. That's all of us. How do, we, how do I resonate with that in a kind of a conversational format? Okay, I'll go first. Um, so so the, way, the way I would speak to that, I would say, man, I remember, um, especially in junior high, it was crazy hard for me. Me and my friends, we actually created a table, and we called it the loser table because we weren't allowed to sit with anybody else. And if we would create our own table called the loser table that nobody else could be in, then we'd actually created our own exclusive group, and we always knew there was um, acceptance and attention for us there, and we were safe there. And, and so I know that was one of the hardest couple of years of my life. Um, and it, it was, I look back, I'm like, man, why would I be so self-deprecating? Like, I wasn't, I don't think I was that much of a loser. I mean, maybe I was. <laughs> but that, that, that's, I completely get that. Boom. I've simply resonated there. Um, what, what's another way, you don't have to share, you know, deep, dark, crazy thing you did, but another way you can resonate with that desire for attention and acceptance. Acknowledgement, you know, you think that that's going to get you somewhere with the boss or pay increase. And through experience, you know, it's not what it's about. It's, yeah, yeah, and so if, if you had an anecdote there, right, where you said, man, I completely get that. Like, well, well, let me tell you how much I get that. Here's what I did to try and garner his attention and get him his acceptance and that promotion. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't really the extra, you know, 7,500 bucks a year I needed that badly. It was for him to look at him like, you bring value to this company. That, that, that's what I would do for that. That's what I did do for that. People, that, that's really resonating at a heart and emotional level there. Now, on the attention and acceptance narrative here, how would we then you might say deconstruct, the word I use was dismantle. How, how would I show that any non-gospel narrative can't fix this desire, this need for attention and acceptance? Why don't you discuss that with the partner? That'd be a good discussion there. How do we dismantle that? I'll give you, uh, give you about 90 seconds.
Okay, so that's a um, little bit of time there on the dismantle. What did you guys talk about? How do we dismantle? How do we show that anything besides the gospel can't ultimately fulfill that longing, that desire for attention and acceptance? Just on that, just like think back to times where you have received that acceptance. Um, did it last? Was it, you know, did it take care of that desire for good of acceptance and approval? Um, if not, why? Um, it's because it wasn't meant to, that that's a momentary fulfillment that wasn't meant to last. And here's where lasting fulfillment could, or acceptance and approval can be found. Right. Now notice what Zach did. He just invited people into reflection. That's one thing that's so hard for us to do. And in a meaningful conversation, to invite someone into that reflection is, first of all, it's going to be painful. But it also is painful because you recognize the truth of what you're trying to get at. Yep. What were other things um, that you guys discussed on how we dismantle that narrative? It's pretty similar to what you said, but it's kind of a, an idea where the, the desire that you're trying to fulfill is actually pointing to a greater desire, uh, to a greater need, that, that this is not, whatever this situation is, is not going to fulfill. Yeah, and by leveraging your own examples there, you're starting to be like, hey, I tried it, fulfillment here, and you're here, and neither of it's working, and I had a brother who tried it this way, and hang on a second, what's the common denominator? It's not working for any of us. Right. Yeah. Other thoughts? There's a lot of ways. We don't need to spend forever on this, but, but just to be thinking through, okay, here's how I can resonate with that. Here's how I can dismantle and show that ultimately pursuing this apart from the gospel won't work. Now, attention and acceptance, when it comes to the gospel, here's how the gospel does fix this and then what it will cost you. Here's where I can turn and say, look, any desire for a 
attention or acceptance apart from the gospel basically is rooted in what I've done. It's a what have you done for me lately world. Right? And the, the horrible thing about that is eventually my performance is going to fail. Eventually, I mean, even with the highest achievers of all, what's Michael Jordan done recently? Except have a losing NBA franchise. Right? And so you can eventually, that is going to fail. But here's how you know that the love of God, his acceptance won't ever fail. Because Romans 8 talks about, maybe I wouldn't quite jump into giving the Bible verses just yet. But say, look, here's, here's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that God came down motivated by his love for us. And it actually says all over the place, all over the New Testament, I could take you to 20 different verses, that says not only did he love us in like, our, yeah, our sin and our, our screw-ups and our failures and all our imperfections was over there, but he had that in full view. In fact, one of the verses in the Bible says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, FYI, that's Romans 5, 8. Like, he's showing, like, in the midst of your worst day, in the midst of the thing that you would never let anybody know that, that thought goes through your head, and if you did that thing, you would never let anybody know that you did that thing because you're so ashamed of it. Right there is unconditional acceptance. So much attention, he would leave the perfection of heaven to come to the worst death ever for you. Where are you ever going to find that attention? Where are you ever going to find that acceptance anywhere else? Man, you're not. And it's never going to go away because he came down, died, and then rose again to prove that he was God, to prove that he had conquered death, to prove that that love would never fade away. And so what's actually... Maybe the most famous chapter in the whole Bible ends with this massive list of what could separate us from God's love. Because God knew that our heart would think, yeah, I could be separated from this love and this acceptance. And so he puts this whole litany and he ends it saying, nor can anything else in all creation separate us from the love of God. Because we know that what we're going to try and do is say, well, I could separate myself from the love of God if I was bad enough. Are you part of creation? Yeah, you are. And when God says, nor can anything else in all creation separate you from the love of God, that means you can't separate you from the love of God. You can't find that anywhere, man. This is where acceptance is found. This is where love is found. Now, in a sense, you've just walked through God, man, Christ response. But it sounds a lot different than, hey, here's 120 seconds. Would you walk through God, man, Christ response? And so what I say at the beginning is we have to know God, man, Christ response backwards, forward, sideways, diagonals, up, down, backwards. I mean, the whole thing. Because those of you that have been praying for somebody who's lost and trying to say, how can I reach them? You've thought through this over and over. You know where people find their identity. Right? This is not an abstraction for you right now. You're seeing their face. You're seeing their family. You're seeing the restaurant you guys like to go to. And you know where that conversation is going to gravitate to. And you can begin to frame, okay, here's how I take this, this rough outline, and I contextualize it. I take the unchanging truth of the gospel, and I begin to say it in a way that they can actually understand. Like, oh, that is what I'm looking for. 
I didn't know that. It's, it's like I was lost and now I'm found. It's like I was blind and now I can see. How did I not know that? Now, that's, that's the good news. The bad news is this can boomerang on you and sound like a crushing weight. Man, I got to like do some Freudian analysis of them and like know where their identity is and know what they value and figure out here's how I'm going to do this, that, and like okay, remember what we said well, you probably don't remember, it's been a long time let me remind you what we said <laughs> the sovereignty of God and salvation is the most reassuring one of the most reassuring doctrines in the whole Bible because what it says is God chooses to use you but God doesn't need you and so I've had people, fr- close friends come to Christ and say to me, Justin, I know you've been saying this to me for years because I can hear in my head the very words you've said to me. And I thought I agreed with them at the time. And it's like a light switched, and now the lights are on inside my house. And I don't know why I couldn't see before, but now I can. And it proves the point. It's like, I'm going to do everything I can, like Paul. I'm going to become like all men, so that by all means I might save some. Because that person matters, and I love them that much. But also recognizing it's not ultimately up to me. My words can't save anybody. My contextualization is not going to bring anybody to the cross. But I want to be a useful servant in God's kingdom. I'm going to love that person enough to put forth that effort. And we could go on and on on different storylines, existential cries, Ways that I, I find, interpret the storyline, how are things supposed to be, why are they not that way, what's going to put them right, resume, resonate, dismantle, gospel, all of that. Um, but here's what I'd like to do. We've got about 20 minutes left, and so I'm going to give you about 8 to 10 minutes with your partner, and I want you to think through who's that person that you're trying to reach with the gospel, and what's a cultural storyline that does resonate with them, and how do you begin to frame in this whole resonate, dismantle, gospel in the specific context of where you're at. And then what we'll do in the last 10 minutes is kind of have an opportunity to share, I think this is what it may look like. Here's where I'm not quite sure. Like, what do you guys think? How might I, how might I talk about this? Um, because I think there's an opportunity with a group of people here who are like-minded saying, you clearly care about this. You come out on a Sunday night when there's all kinds of other things you could be doing. Let's put our heads together and help each other think through here's how I can reach those closest to me with the gospel. Okay? So just talk about a couple, like, let's say one person. Cap it at one person in your life um, and how we find that cultural storyline. That's kind of the first thing. Let me skip ahead here. Find the cultural storyline, identify the existential cry, and then find and interpret the storyline. And then at about 720, we'll kind of pull it back together and and talk about where we're at and how we can um, go forward from here.
Like there's a cry for more for justice or more for forgiveness there. Well, so I guess I was thinking I was thinking more society, but even more nuanced of where you're a person you're with. Like, kick it, is there the? I think he's a cold stance for justice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and then you kind of start to play out. Hey, these. This was actual sexual servitude, this is human trafficking, completely against their will, like, like, yes, we need love, but love and justice have to come together without that to say, oh, it's okay, mercy covers it, Robert, don't worry about it. Now, obviously, that leads to that conversation of, well, let's let him pay his dues to society, and then he's set free, why is hell forever? And that's another interesting discussion, but... um, That's a good way of asking him what he thinks Graf deserves. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Keller does a lot with that in this one of the like the, the more root like justice kind of things as opposed to the more like attention acceptance. I don't think he spends as much time on that, but how to pull that out that it's, it's really good. I haven't read that one. I'm a lot more familiar with Counterfeit Gods and those priests and forgotten. Yes. The hard idols and Counterfeit Gods. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's felt much more when I like when I read Reason for it was interesting I'm like oh yeah those are questions I ask um, and you read that I'm like boy those are not questions I'm asking and that again that to me that kind of signals okay this is good I need to be chewing on this more hey let's uh, let's pull it together here we got about about ten minutes left um, and so so I'll kind of open up either or could go a couple directions one of hey we talked about this and we're just not sure quite how we process how we think through what we do with this or as we were discussing we thought of something it was kind of a light bulb moment for us and if it was a light bulb for us maybe it would be you know kind of helpful for somebody else to hear a little bit that that's not arrogant for you to do that that's being kind um, because it probably means you found something where I didn't explain it very well and it would help the rest of the group if you would speak up so um, share with us a little bit of your discussion there child she is, has been very very wounded 
I don't know her whole story. Um, and I don't know if it's out of sheer manipulation or if she truly sees me as somebody she can trust, but she, uh, she's come to me multiple times. Um, and I, you know, as I talk through some of this, as I've talked through some of this with Matt, you know, I think her biggest cry of her heart is, is love and acceptance, right? I mean, she's never mentioned, I don't know if dad's ever been in the picture, mom's in jail, she's been in group homes, she's been bounced around, she's, it's just, it's a tragic story. And so she has come to me in tears multiple times about it's not fair, I'm being bullied. Now, I guess that she's doing plenty of bullying herself, but I'm being bullied, nobody cares. Um, and I think to a some extent without even knowing this, I've, I've done some of this, but in terms of resonating, like, girl, middle school sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've, been I've been there, I, and I, but I'm on the other side of it, and I can tell you that it, it gets better. And, you know, you can kind of meet, I, I've been able, I, I think, to meet her in that, in that spot and say, I, I get it. No, I, I don't know the things you've experienced. I've never had to experience those, but I've experienced the cruelty of kids around. Um, it's that it's it's kind of moving past and I've prayed with her I mean I have not been shy I've prayed with her in things but I, I don't know that it's always an easy transition to go from what she's feeling in that moment to kind of showing her the better way yep well, I think that's a huge part I'm going I'm to ask everyone else for input on this so just be prepping yourself of kind of walking in the spirit of, Lord, how much of an open door are you giving me right here? Right, I want to push on that, and I want to be sensitive, and I don't want to just be a bulldozer, and yet I want to know that her soul is eternal, and there's no guarantee I see her tomorrow. Right, there, there's, there's that, that, that complete tension that we're always dealing with there. Um, in that spot, I'm thinking, okay, how much... Can I truly get to the gospel here? We, we empathize, we resonate, and we're working towards dismantle and gospel is kind of go together. Um, how, have, how have others, maybe how would you think about that situation that Christie's in? some of those ways that what, what were things that were this is inbounds to kind of go there and this feels out of bounds and it's going to shut be a shutdown you don't know yeah. about you find resources and somebody that yeah experienced that's good it's definitely tricky on those where you don't you don't want to say too much and run people away and I think so week one, we talked about building bridges of grace that can handle the weight of the truth. I think one of the challenges in what we're describing here is a, a go-and-tell approach to ministry as opposed to come and see, right? And the, the difficulty with go-and-tell is there's a lot of going and not a lot of telling. It's just, oh, let's have lunch together. Oh, let's just have people into the clinic and 
hurt with them, and I, I don't want to minimize it in any kind of a bad way, but it's how do we get there. Um, when we've appropriately loved, when we've appropriately resonated, when we've appropriately empathized, we have to trust that I've built a bridge of grace that can handle the weight of the truth. Like You might reject it, you may not like me for it, but the fact that you say, I don't like what you're saying and I don't like you because you're saying it, we also have to remember, if I did work to build that bridge of grace, then there's a bridge of grace there. And I got a responsibility to tell you as well. But I do think it's, it's by the spirit, moment by moment in those. Um, other thoughts on um, the conversations you had? Christy shared a little bit about hers. Were there any other conversations that... Um, Either there was a question that came up in it, or we kind of we kind of thought that oh that's that may be a helpful way to approach this. I think as I was thinking about, I was talking with Matt. There's a guy at work that I work with. His name's Jim, and I've had awesome opportunities to build a relationship with him. He crashed his car a few months ago. Lives right down the street from me, so I gave him a ride to work for about a month. Um, you know, we're both big Colts fans, so we talk a lot about sports, but. I think it's it's been slightly intimidating, you know. Uh, I feel like it's fairly easy for people my own age to, to be able to share my faith with them. Jib's about <coughs> 35 years older than me, and so I feel like that's been a little intimidating, someone who's my dad's age or older, um, engaging him on a deeper level. Um, but I think one thing, just looking through these that I've not done well, is resonating. Um, when he, you know, we've had some, some deeper conversation, and. Um, you know, he's divorced, and when, when he talks about, you know, man, I, I wish I could find somebody out, I'm lonely, like he's, you know, we've, we've gone there, I don't feel like I resonate well, I'm like, yeah, I hope, I hope you find somebody too. I'm not naturally empathetic, I, I, I don't, I struggle with that, and so I feel like this is a good reminder, it's something I want to work on uh, next time that gets brought up trying to, it's like, I've been lonely before, obviously, like, yeah. so I, I need to... Um, you know, try and resonate better uh, personally and just not, that sucks, you know, like move on. Like, um, and so uh, I, I think that was challenging. Yeah. Um, so. Well, then one of the things I heard um, Zach and Matt talking about too is you guys both mentioned like really, really heavy, deep, soul-searching kinds of situations, right? Uh, um but you guys also were talking about the whole Robert Kraft situation, right? right? Um, so Robert Kraft is the owner of the New England Patriots, um, was recently caught um, soliciting prostitution, is it Miami, Orlando? Somewhere in Florida. Um, and it was a spot where it was actually human trafficking. So you had minors being held against their will to provide sex acts to 77-year-old NFL owner. And so there's this whole range of emotions of like, what's the response there? Right, um, and so you can you can take a a deep seated like massive relational equity issue like you guys just talked about, but when we think through the lens of resonate dismantle gospel, there's all kinds of news bites com- coming through the wires. Like, man, don't like think about what what if that was your 13 year old daughter that was abducted in there? Man, you know we need a world with justice in it. You know it. Like, I would be so furious. Like, I'd, I'd be, God help me. Like, I'd be locking myself in a room and asking someone else to have the key. Like, you, 
you could you could be more graphic with that picture there and resonate in a significant way. It doesn't mean in that conversation you have to get there. But maybe the next day, I'm like, man, you ever, I was thinking about this, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but to me, this is part of the reason that that we have a God of justice being so important alongside the God of love and grace and mercy. Because if you lose one of them, the whole thing is in, it's going to be a mess. And that's not something that's nearly as, as heavy in the same way as like my own personal experiences dealing with my story and all this deep-seated pain that I've felt. Um, I think those opportunities are readily available to us as well. So it's looking for um, any opportunity I have to speak of Christ. I feel like this is coming to me too late, but even when Jim and I were talking about Robert Kraft, he was saying like, He's he's a billionaire. Why why is he why is he going after you know pursuing that? And it's like that's another open door to you know why is he you know yep. if you think money you know all, all the wealth would make you that happy then then why why would you pursue something else like that? Like yep, I, retrospect should should use that. But <laughs> right yeah it's yeah. So I, I hope what you're seeing here is when we start talking about maybe you've heard the term relational evangelism and maybe you like that term and maybe you don't. Um, it definitely can go well and go poorly. But I'm trying to lay a foundation here for here's how this can go really well with intentionality and listening as well as I can. And I begin to empathize with people and hear where they're at. And I actually feel for them like, oh, I, I hurt with you. And I want you to have hope. Um, I'll, I'll leave you with this one thing. I was listening to a podcast while I was exercising the other day. And, and one of the guys said, hey, when you're, fr- when you're creating a sermon, what are you thinking about? Who are you trying to preach to? And the guy said, if you always preach to the broken, hope to the broken, you'll always have an audience. Mm. Uh, wow, that's profound in way more than just a preaching context. Everybody's broken. Some people look it. Some don't look it so much, especially in suburbia. But everybody's broken. And so speak to hope to the broken and you'll always have an audience. And saying, where, where's the brokenness showing up here? Where are you not recognizing the brokenness yet? All right? This is a good class. I, I love this one. Um, fun to dive in. We will continue next week. Um, we're going to look at, we're going to combine the two classes. So we had religious defeaters and secular defeater arguments. Um, we'll merge those into one. Um, and so if you've got, I mentioned this before, if you've got a situation where I've had a conversation with somebody and they brought up this issue, what about dot, 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 fill in the blank, whatever it may be, just shoot me a quick text or an email and I will make sure we address that next week. Um, if not, obviously there's, there's some common ones that we've already kind of prepared on and can talk through that, but we want to serve you as well as we can with this class. Um, your assignment for tonight on the way home, uh, text somebody, not while you're driving in the car, whoever, whatever you're going to do, let people know where you're at. But on the way home, spend time in prayer for yourself and for somebody you're trying to reach. And if you're by yourself, pray just to the Lord. If there's two of you, both of you pray together. Um, leverage that time for something eternal, not just um, you know, kind of daydream. But talk, talk to Jesus about that. Let me pray, and then you guys can be dismissed. God, thanks for the opportunity to look at your word and to just think strategically about how we can reach people that need you. Help us to speak hope to the broken because there is true hope in you. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. See you next week.